Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Ion Veterans ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you can have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. There are nearly 20 million military vets in the U.S. And each week, we focus on their stories. This is CBS Eye on Veterans. Welcome back to CBS Eye on Veterans. I'm Navy vet Phil Briggs, and today we're going to talk about an incredible new book, Sacrifice. It's by the author Michelle Black. Michelle is the gold star wife of the fallen Green Beret Brian Black. She's a mother, and along the way, she became an incredibly talented, self-taught investigative journalist, revealing one hell of a story. So with that, Michelle, welcome to Eye on Veterans. How are you? Hi, I'm good. Thank you so much for having me on today. So good to talk to you, and it's amazing. I was thinking about this as we were leading up to this interview last week, and that uh, we are conducting this interview the very week of the anniversary of the tragedy of that fateful mission in Central Africa that caused the deaths of the Green Berets fighting terrorism along the Niger-Mali border. And it's the story of ODA, Operational Detachment Alpha, or A-Team as they're known, 3212. And um, the flawed mission that senior army officials have never fully taken responsibility for. And in fact, as you've proven in this book, often flat out lied about. It's a trend that we still see playing out on national TV with generals standing behind podiums and dancing away the responsibility of the deaths of Americans, even right up to our very last days in Afghanistan, where we lost 13 Marines. So, Michelle, let's start here. Just kind of unpack what this Niger ambush was. Uh, it was an ambush near the village of Tonga Tonga, where your husband, Brian, and his fellow Green Berets, Dustin Wright, LaDavid Johnson, and Jeremiah Johnson, along with several Nigerian soldiers, paid the ultimate price. But uh, refresh our memory about what this incident was. So this incident was the biggest loss of life on the continent of Africa since the Battle of Mogadishu, um, also known as Black Hawk Down. 
initially it started out as a one-day mission and turned into a two-day mission where the team was sent alone hunting down um, a known terrorist by the name of Dondi Shefu. Um, he was one of the leaders of ISIS-GS, which is Greater Sahara. Mm-hmm. Um, and they were um, initially supposed to be on a multi-team raid for the second half of the mission. Um, a Helleborn unit was supposed to come in and lead it, and, and my husband's team, 3212, was supposed to act as kind of a QRF. Um, what ended up happening was weather detained the Helleborn team, and they got turned back. And my husband's team was then ordered to proceed as the lead and only team with no Kazabak, no air, no close air support, no QRF. And so they went ahead, but they went up to the dangerous Mali border, cleared a campsite at sunrise. Um, and on their way back to camp, they were set upon by a large enemy force numbering somewhere between one and 200 militants. Mm. You vaguely remember, or at least Americans listening to this may vaguely remember those days because for the, a week or more, you know, the pictures of the Green Berets were splashed up on the TV screen and we were talking about it. And anytime there's a significant loss of life on one of these missions uh, throughout the global war on terrorism, we discuss it openly in the news media, but it tends to come and go. You know, there's white hot attention on it for a few days and then that'll dissipate. And then certainly in those kind of beginning days of the Trump administration, there was just like a a focus every couple of days on something new. And even this story got kind of hijacked by the news media. You know, a lot of us don't remember it properly because no sooner did the president call the Gold Star widows to express his sympathies and share his condolences. Uh, it seems like the media's desire to talk about the president uh, almost overrode this whole incident. Share with me how it got hijacked with respect to uh, the other Gold Star wife's phone call with the president that week. Yeah, so then we, when he called all of us, um, he called Sergeant David's wife and um, said something over the phone that upset her. And when she spoke out about it, it turned, of course, he, he tweeted, and it just turned into this contentious thing. And it, you know, the focus became this tweet feud and him saying he didn't say those things to her, her saying, yes, he did. And it just blew up into, you know, asking everybody under the sun what their opinion of this phone call was, um, including actors and, you know, politicians. And so it became this big, political um, firestorm over a phone call. And really, you know, that was just, that was one small piece of a much bigger thing. I mean, yes, like she, her feelings were hurt, you know, and that was legitimate and him tweeting, he should have just dropped it and walked away. But to make that become the main focus from then on out, it, you know, we needed to know the truth of events on the ground and figure out what happened those days. And that seemed to just get swept aside because everybody was so bent on trying to find something to blow up over Trump. Mm. Um, and unfortunately, that happens a lot where the, our focus is destroying a president instead of, hey, what's the truth here? Like, let's forget politics for a minute. And and what actually happened? Because most of these military incidents 
we, yeah, we say, you know, the commander in chief, the commander in chief. But what about the generals? What about these four star generals? What about the three star generals? What about the commanders? You know, presidents don't know what a 12 man team in the middle of nowhere Africa is doing. So mm -hmm. let's let's focus in on who commanded them to go ahead, who was responsible for their training, who was responsible for the intelligence that led them um, and put them in this position. Or, you know, did we even look into the intelligence available um, telling us that maybe they shouldn't have been up there? Those are the bigger questions, but those were not what the media was focusing in on. Now, something else the media may have missed was the experience Michelle Black and her children had with President Trump during his condolence phone call. And as Michelle described in the book, their oldest son, who is autistic, was inspired by the coverage of the president over that election year and even fascinated by his presence on social media. His interest in the president would be rewarded during the hardest week of their lives. So it was funny because then he decided, well, because I think he was maybe in fifth or sixth grade at the time and he went, oh, I, well, I love the memes. So he fell in love with all the Trump memes because he thought they were hilarious because, you know, typical, you know, I think he was 10 at the time, typical 10 year old. So um, he wanted to go stay at the Trump Hotel and we had actually visited the summer before Brian died and he wanted pictures in front of every door acting like he was walking in to stay there in front of every Trump sign. He wanted to ride the elevator, I mean, everything. And then he wanted to stay the night. So when Trump called, um, he, you know, typical, everyone always says, you know, right after your spouse dies, hey, if there's ever anything I can do for you. And Trump said the same to me. And it was funny because I realized that other people must have been listening in on the call because when I said it, I heard the whole room go quiet because I said, yes, actually there is. Um, we would like to stay at your hotel. We can't afford it. And we are Brian, we're um, burying Brian at Arlington. And my son loves you and would love to stay at your hotel. And he, the whole room went quiet. And I heard him talking to people in the background saying, uh, you know, can we get that set up? And some, can somebody take care of that for me? And then he goes, how's two rooms for two nights sound? And I went, that sounds perfect. So um, yeah, Zeke was just, it, it helped Zeke um, during that time. I think it helped all of us have at least something to look forward to when you're talking about going up to do the last thing in the world you want to do, which is put your husband in the ground. Um, that was the hardest day of my life. And knowing that at the end of it, I could go and um, experience something greater than I'll probably ever experience in my life again. You know, I mean, I can't afford a, I think that was, gosh, I don't know how much it is a night, but I know like it's more than my, you know, yeah. mortgage. <laughs> for it's, more, one night. it's really more than so, both of us could afford indeed yeah. <laughs> yeah so to not just have that and be able to give that to my kids still be able to afford to eat while we stayed there that was that was miraculous well I really loved the way that kind of segued into the rest of your writing you start your search uh to find out what really happened to the green berets there on the Niger Mali border from the very first moments you're with his teammates they said that they were under a gag order and they really couldn't talk to you about it. And it seems weird over like pastries and coffee and desserts or something at a funeral setting that they're still hesitant to talk to you. In your gut, did you know stuff was about to go sideways when these men were very standoffish? Well, 
it was odd. I mean, I wondered why they had been standoffish uh, because they had been, and I felt like they were avoiding me, but I thought maybe it was because of just the emotion of having to face us after losing, um, after losing Brian. And I knew that some of them were um, fairly seriously injured. And um, so I thought, well, maybe that's it, but I've heard that they're around and I haven't seen all of them, seen some of them. Um, but yeah, they, they were being very tight lipped. And so that seemed odd initially. And I didn't know if it's, it was self-protection just emotionally or um, what. And so when they said that, when they said, you know, we, we aren't really supposed to be talking about what happened, that to me was a huge red flag. But I thought it didn't occur to me that they would be under investigation. You know, I, I mm. thought, okay, maybe the military is just not wanting any leaks. And so maybe they, they want to run this investigation and this is fairly normal. And um, once the investigation is complete, then these guys can talk about whatever. But what was odd was as the investigation proceeded, things are being leaked out of the press that they're saying this came from an anonymous source within the investigation. And they're saying things that are starting to paint the team in a bad light. But the team I'm hearing are not allowed to speak or stand up for themselves. And mm. that's when I thought this, A, what I'm, what I'm hearing coming out of the press doesn't sound at all like Green Berets. And this is odd that these guys can't defend themselves. You know, that, that was a huge, huge issue with me. Well, the book keeps the momentum going there. And again, in the book, Sacrifice, uh, you talk about the investigation that the army made and that AFRICOM made uh, the investigation into the ambush was led internally by the very leadership of AFRICOM responsible for the failed operation rather than an impartial military authority. The failure of the operation was pinned on the first CONOP or the concept of operation, which was written by Captain Perizzini. Uh, months go by, the feet were dragged. This took forever to finish, but when six, eight months, whatever later, this thing finally comes out uh, you wrote about this like really kind of eerie meeting where you roll in and there's military generals in this conference room and there's military senior leaders and lawyers and they walk you through step by step the mission, what happened. And it's uncanny what they told you unpack that for me and how this got pinned on a concept of operation, which was written by just, you know, a lowly SF captain low on the food chain out there in the field doing the best he can. Yeah. And, and, you know, even though they kind of walked us step by step through the operation, they really glossed over it. They, it felt like it was in fast forward and and they had told us, oh, you can speed up, slow down, go back, ask questions. But every time I would slow down and ask questions, you could feel it building this frustration and annoyance that they had with me, which was interesting. So, um, for instance, initially they were talking, okay, the team I'm being told by General, um, Cloutier, who was running the briefing, the family briefing, he is telling me the team initially left, uh, for a one day mission out of Wallam down to Tillawa. It was, you know, the concept of operations said that it was a civ male reconnaissance mission. It was not 
Um, and for those listening, that means they were just going out into the hinterland there to watch and look for alleged bad guys. They heard there might be some bad guys in the backyard. So let's go on a, let's go march over to the neighboring village. Let's scope it out and see what's going on. Yeah. And then he says, you know, but that was actually a kill capture mission. And then he just moves on. And then, you know, they get sent back home and on the way home, they get stopped outside the village of Mengezi about in a couple hours from their base in Wallam and are redirected for the next concept of operations uh, to go up to the border of Mali in search of the terrorist um, because they had intelligence that there may be a camp up there. And so he just glosses over, like skips straight from Conop 1. They were down there on a sieve mill, but in reality, it was a kill capture. So when I said, well, okay, let me ask you something. It, you know, you're saying that co- the concept of operations was actually, Conop 1 was actually a kill capture mission. And he said, yes. And I asked, but they went down to Tilawa and first they sent in, I said, a civil mill would be civilian military, correct? And he goes, well, um, Miss Black, civilian uh, reconnaissance mission is the doctrinal definition for that is, and he goes, proceeds to tell me what the doctrinal definition for a civil uh, reconnaissance mission is. And I said, okay. And he goes, but there is no doctrinal definition for a military reconnaissance mission. And so there is no such thing as a civ mill. That doesn't exist. You just have to trust me, Miss Black. Like this, this was not okay. What he did was very wrong. And then he just tries to push forward. And I'm like, right, okay. But I said, but technically they did go in. They did do a civilian reconnaissance mission, correct? That's correct. And his his frustration continued to build. And I said, and then they went down and they did a military, a KLE, a key leader engagement with the local military unit uh, just outside of Tilawa, which would be the military portion of that. Correct? And he says, correct, Miss Black, but a civil mill reconnaissance mission has no doctrinal definition. Therefore, it was a kill capture mission. And I just went, Okay, because you just have to trust us and you'll you'll see, you know, you will see why this matters so much. And I thought, well, if I don't see it now and if you can't clearly explain it to me now, then why am I going to see it in the future? And I thought, well, maybe at some point in this conversation, he will explain it to me. But he never did. Wow. He just moved on. It's a thrilling part of, I want to say chapters 10 and 11 there, where you're kind of exposing what went on in that conference room. And that was one of three different concept of operations that were made and approved. So after going and investigating the camp where they thought the bad guys might be, they roll up, they're done. It's sunrise. Everybody's good. Let's go back to base. And they get beamed up on another mission because something came through the radio and was like, Hey, we got a new con up here. You guys are going to go do this. And they take them up to the border. And then there's, the helicopter team that's coming in, that's going to be the the ones that get there first. And then Brian and his team, 3212, was going to work as backup to that team. But right. in a sandstorm and weather, the helicopter can't get there. So they're like, well, let's call that team off. Team 3212, you're going to move ahead. And there was a, a third con op written for that one. Yet the general that you were just speaking about and everyone there in the army chose to assign the lion's share of blame 
to the guy that wrote the first con op, which was successfully completed and never had any interaction with anyone else. Like never had any engagement with an enemy. It was never, they did what they wrote they would do. And then there were two separate orders, two separate con ops made after that. They were authored by a guy, Lieutenant Colonel Painter. Did they have any idea that you were sitting there suspecting them of lying to your face? Yeah, you know, it it was so odd because I thought they seem like they legitimately believe what they're telling me. General Cloutier seemed like a genuinely good guy who really believed what he was telling me. But it felt like he had come to the conclusion first and then worked all of the investigation in order to reach that conclusion. All right, real quick, I want to stop and uh, make some obligatory plugs for some friends of the show as I sip on my delicious Black Rifle coffee. Ah, Yeah, good stuff. Although I probably don't make it the right way. I have to have Evan on the show and find out how to make it because I'm just making mine in a regular old coffee maker. Apparently that's a sin, but uh, Black Rifle coffee, dig it. Um, Also, dig the podcast, The Back Brief. Now, if you've never heard it, it's hosted by my buddy, Army veteran Rod Rodriguez. And uh, if you like all things military, veteran, tactical, ball busting, bacon, (laughs) then you're going to love the way Rod hosts the back brief. Tim Kennedy, a special forces reserve master sergeant, has been in the news lately as he's been helping uh, evacuate folks out of Afghanistan. Now, his actions have recently come under fire from his own fellow special operations forces for allegedly causing a bit of a traffic jam at one of Kabul airport's gates. But the real vitriol has been directed at his social media posts. So here's the thing. This isn't about being arrogant or being humble. Tim Kennedy isn't handing out a sandwich to some homeless guy and then taking a selfie with the dude. This is about presenting a real problem that real people are having, and it's a serious one. You can find The Back Brief at ConnectingVets.com and everywhere you get podcasts. So, check it out. Now, back to this podcast. Now, we've been talking with Gold Star wife and author Michelle Black about her new book, Sacrifice. And as we've heard so far, her husband, Brian Black, and three other Green Berets died in combat in Africa back in 2017 when their unit was ambushed by ISIS fighters. And after hearing the army blame his unit for the tragedy, Michelle wanted to know the truth about what actually happened. And as we discussed, she discovered the army was pushing a false story, and the media would soon add to her family's pain. Newly released video shows the deadly ambush of American soldiers and is raising new questions about the U.S. military mission in the African country of Niger. A warning. Parts of this are disturbing and graphic. Was it weird when, like, you would press back, or your father-in-law, the former Marine there, um, when he would press back on a question about, again, three con-ops, three mission set of orders drafted, 
And they're going to pin it all on the first guy who wrote the one that did not involve an ambush. They're going to pin it all on that guy. And as you pressed him, uh, it was eerie how you described sometimes they would be looking over your shoulder at the lawyers behind you or that they would be having this kind of eye conversation with the lawyers as they spoke. At that point, did you know that you had him? Well, what was funny is the general, the general seemed just like he was going through with what he believed. Like, like I said, he seemed very just genuine, but this lawyer would like make sure to get eye contact with the general or stand up to get his attention. And so that's when I thought, okay, he is being controlled by this lawyer who's standing up reminding him you know, where this, where this conversation needs to go. And that's when I thought, you know, um, this is, this is being very, very controlled. So every once in a while, my father-in-law would ask a question and I turned to look at my father-in-law and I'd see the lawyer stand up and shake his head. And when I asked them, because after we finished the discussion on the first con op and we got into the next two con ops, I would stop him at each con op and I would say, okay, so did Captain Perizzini make that con op? And he'd say, well, no, Ms. Black, he couldn't have because he did not have the equipment available. So it was somebody back at base, you know, the Helleborn unit team Arlet, or it was, you know, someone back at base in Niami at headquarters. And, and his big push with con op one was, well, you know, it didn't get all the po- proper approvals. And so then I was like, okay, so from then on out, every con up, I was like, okay, but did that one get all the proper approvals? Oh, yes, that one was sent all the way up the chain, and and that was given all proper approvals, and there were VTCs, and that included, you know, the lieutenant colonel and the colonel, you know, and so I'm going, okay, well, that matters more to me. And if you felt that they fooled you, right, on that first con op, and they were underprepared on a mission like that, on a kill capture mission and didn't get the proper approvals, then why now are you approving a team that tricked you and didn't have the proper approvals to now go on a multi-team raid up near the dangerous Molly border? You should assume that they are far underprepared if you think they just went on a little civilian military reconnaissance. Mm -hmm. It didn't make any sense, all their reasoning. And again, your book drives it home like a John Grisham novel, which is why I keep going back to that conference room, because it was just such that they would say, oh, well, the first report obviously is the bad one. Nothing happened after the first report. It's the second orders, the second con op. And then it's the third con op when they decided, "Okay, we don't have any air support. We don't have a backup team for these guys. Well, let's just send them on their own. That doesn't sound like that meets the risk analysis test, the risk assessment test. That doesn't sound like a safer mission than a civilian military peekaboo. I mean, come on, man. And the fact that they wouldn't back down from that, they still tried to pin it on the first Captain Perizzini report. It it frustrates you. If the men had said, you know, let's say no one up the chain called and said, hey, we've got another mission for you. They would have just gone home and been in their beds that night. So really what led to the ambush? Con op one? No. What led to all the death? Con op two and con op through three created by those at the highest levels. Mm-hmm. And that is not what you find in the final redacted report. You find what contributed and what did not, what was an attenuating factor when it came to lives being lost on the ground that day. Mm-hmm. My husband shouldn't have been on the ground that day, plain and simple. 
and I don't want to give it away because it's in the book, but of course you actually do sometime after the AFRICOM report was first released to you and the families, you actually did have a guy show up out of nowhere, Lieutenant Colonel Painter, come to your house and try to share his condolences with you and try to give you some sort of uh, sincere gesture, uh, which was one, not seen as very sincere, two, almost a year late, <laughs> and yep. three, interesting how that guy, Lieutenant Colonel Painter, and I'll say his name again because I'm not afraid to say it on this show, he never, was never reprimanded for this. Guys mm-hmm. under his command, guys under the authority of the CONOP that he wrote died. He never got mentioned in that report. And that, that's one of the things that I find incredibly tough to swallow. It's riveting the way you wrote about it. Um, and there's another thing that I found kind of tough to swallow that, well, I think we need to, uh, I think we need to address it right here on the show. But while all this is going on, um, a video is about to go viral. Right. Uh, it was shared by people that I know in the industry. Good morning. The video is hard to watch because it shows the final moments of American soldiers fighting for their lives. I get it. The media, if it bleeds, it leads. And I don't even know that you could stop it. But there is something that needs to be noted here. And on page 116, um, you wrote, the worst part of this horrible day was actually far better than my mother-in-law's was. The night the video was released, an unsuspecting mother-in-law came home from work and flipped open her laptop ready to relax and stream through the day's top news stories from cbs news as she sat in her couch footage flashed across the screen of a soldier shooting a weapon he was taking fire he was falling the world seemed to slow down as the familiar figure she had watched grow from an infant into a grown man the figure she had seen only months before fell tears flooded her face as she watched her youngest son die on national tv there was no cover and no escape The soldier wearing the helmet camera went down. Soon the camera stopped moving and some of the enemy CBS came into view. Was the only media conglomerate that felt it was acceptable to air this ISIS propaganda video. ISIS released the video as part of a propaganda campaign. Final blast filled the frame from what apparently was around fired at point blank. I don't really even have a question in here for you, except to say that, um, look, I don't speak for CBS. I work for ConnectingVets.com. This show is aired as part of CBS Audio around the country on radio stations and in, in a podcast. But I want to tell you that I feel, I feel for you there. I feel for your mother-in-law. Um, I love and respect the hell out of all my Gold Star family members, all of my fellow veterans. And that was something that you did not deserve. That is something that yeah. should have never happened. And any news editor out there, I don't know who you are should have shown some better judgment and some greater discipline there because these are my brothers and sisters lives and this is their family. So um, the only point I'd like to make is that that is terror. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And the Pentagon is expected to release the results of its investigation. Brianna. Yet another source of pain for the families of those soldiers. David, thank you. So from that, we go to the book continues to unpack these econops, this AFRICOM report about this ambush in Niger that cost these brave men their lives. And you get to the chapter called The Truth, which is where I am now. Uh, You uncover even more in The Truth. And before I read another quote from the book, go ahead and share with me kind of like after Lieutenant Colonel Painter left, 
after you've got this sort of like you're you're you've now been given this report that seems really bogus what happens next well and before i get into what happened to me i want to point out i was the only family member of the four men who were fallen lieutenant Colonel Painter came to my house. He did not visit my mother-in-law. He did not visit my father-in-law. My father-in-law happened to be at my house at the time. He did not visit any of the other um, parents, any of the other widows, anybody. He came to my house and then he pretty much disappeared. So I guess you could say I'm the lucky one. (laughs) But that shows how little respect he had for those who were fallen. And we're back with CBS Ion Veterans. I'm Navy vet Phil Briggs, and we'll finish our interview with Michelle Black, the Gold Star Widow of Special Forces Staff Sergeant Brian Black. We'll return to the part of the interview where she describes the press conference where the Army and the Pentagon delivered their explanation of that ambush in Niger. Um, General Waldhauser did that and basically told the media all the same things we were told. And then he proceeded to say at the end of it that All teams on the continent were performing optimally, but that this team was not indicative of what special operators do. So in one fell swoop, he managed to completely destroy um, my husband and all of the men who fought and died alongside him. As though when you die with a green beret on, you suddenly aren't worthy of the title. Knowing the amount of work, the amount of years, that my husband put into being becoming a Green Beret, let alone like when he was home, he wasn't really home. If he was home for six months, he actually was training for three. He was gone for three months doing different training. And then he would, when he was home, he was teaching himself skills he could use over there. So he taught himself two extra languages just so he could be useful on the ground. Um, so to hear that he wasn't, you know, indicative or, you know, high enough quality to be considered a green beret. It was the biggest slap in the face I have ever received. And I know every other family member felt the same. It was the worst thing that they could have done. That was kind of the turning point where I just went, okay, I'm done being the good wife who sits here and waits to hear the truth. And, you know, and I I think we all have that as, as, Americans, you know, we trust that when something like this happens with the military, people are going to be honest. They're going to run an honest investigation. At some point, there's going to be fairness and justice, and we expect it. And I kept thinking throughout the process, despite what I saw in my family brief, despite, you know, Lieutenant Colonel Painter's attitude, um, I expected by the time we got to the media brief, I would hear that, hey, these are honorable men. No one's going to be punished. These were our findings and it was going to be dropped. But at that moment, what I realized is they want to crucify these guys and I'm done. I'm, you know, they don't get to do this and I don't care what it costs me. At this point, I had nothing left to lose. My husband was dead. They had lied to me and his death was, was being played on national TV and on YouTube for fun to entertain people. So I had literally suffered my own version of terror at the hands of my government. 
and I was done. So. Mm. Well, it's amazing. And as the chapter, the truth unpacks, we're able to uncover and expose how the army lied, how the army flat out did like pinned this on the wrong guys. And when, when S went down, literally pinned it on the guys who were the victims here, who were the victims of bad leadership of bad, you know, of, of zero accountability. And that's kind of where I want to end this interview because there's another stanza in this book that I just was moved because I literally thought you could have been talking about the world today. Page 147. Watching what had gone on in the past few months, it now seemed to me more and more, it now seemed to me that more and more of our military authorities worry about appeasing the media and giving them the villain they want, whether or not it's the right thing to do, whether or not there is ample evidence. Guilty until proven innocent. That's how it works now. Some of the highest up the chain of the command worry more about their images and career aspirations than their souls. So they offer up the innocent to the media to be made an example of. Many of today's highest military officials are often more closely resembling politicians. They're surrounded by lawyers and they choose their words carefully. Well, here is the truth being spoken by someone who isn't afraid to speak it. Happens. Real leaders take the blame, not just in word, but in action. They defend the soldiers who took their orders and they honor the dead. That's not what I witnessed in the aftermath of the ambush in Niger. And that is not what I saw on television on May 10th, 2018, during the press conference. There was no valor or truth in the actions of our military leaders. My husband was the epitome of a Green Beret soldier. What do you make when you see the press conferences, military leaders standing behind the podiums in the blue room eh, talking about the Afghanistan exit strategy, uh, the the drone strikes? Are we literally watching the same AFRICOM BS? Yeah, I just see hollow, hollow words. They don't, they don't mean anything. We're not getting, we're not getting truth. Truth could potentially cost them their careers. It could cost them something. And, um, you know, lies won't, you know, and I've just, I've reached a point where, um, and I, and I realized this with what happened to Brian's team. The family members are the only ones who are close enough to what has happened to go in and stand up for the survivors and do what's right. Because we've already lost everything. And when you have nothing left to lose, that's when um, <laughs> you really have no limit as far as what you're willing to do and how hard you're willing to push. And that's what it came down to with me and these men is I'm all they have. They were willing to trust me. And that meant the world to me. You know, these are very similar. When you see these generals, four-star generals, I mean, they have far more to lose with the truth than they do just lying. I'm so glad you were able to give us the truth in the book Sacrifice. I am so glad that you were able to, you know, kind of capture everything from the fun, innocent moments of you two dating out there by Lake Tahoe and, and hiking and, 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 you know, ski town girl stays over the summer, meets guy, kind of shy, super smart, kind of nerdy, uh, you know, just how you unpacked <laughs> everything from that love affair on hiking trails and, you know, God's country through this incredible story of service and bravery. Um, just 
just an amazing book. What's the takeaway? Or a lot of people that would just look at this book and think this might just be a memoir. What's kind of the takeaway? Because I, I, I sense there's more here than just the story, you know, of the Black family. Yeah, this is a story about overcoming. And, and I think it's more than just a Republican or a Democrat story, which a lot of people think, oh, it's it's going to be all about Trump, Trump, Trump and, and pro-Republican because they, they see that a lot with military books. It's not. It's a very American story and it's an underdog story. It's you can stand up. I don't care how big the government is. I don't care how big the military is. Right is right and wrong is wrong. And when you've been faced with this and someone's going to push you down, well, you know what? I'm not just a military wife. I am a woman who loved my husband and I will not stand for this. And I can become a journalist if I want. I can become anything I want. I don't care what my education certificate says. Um, I may have an environmental science degree, but today I'm this. Today I'm a social media guru. Tomorrow I might be an author. You know, do what you have to do to get to the truth and don't let anybody tell you what you are or what you can and cannot do. You set your own limits. And that is an amazing end to a great interview and a great book, Sacrifice, A Gold Star Widow's Fight for the Truth. You are Michelle Black, the author and uh, Gold Star Widow and wife of the late, great Green Beret, Brian Black, who, along with his teammates in uh, ODA 3212, died on the battlefield in Africa. And uh, the inspirational message is powerful for those interested in the military, those in the military, and uh, those just interested in a great read. So I thank you very much for writing it, Michelle. Thank you so much for having me on, Phil. It was great talking to you. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Ion Veterans ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at Wondery.com slash survey. Are you ready for an all-new season of Survivor? You better be because Survivor 46 is here and it's 90 minutes of twists and turns you don't want to miss. Better yet, after each episode, there's a brand new episode of On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. Each week, we go behind the scenes of the episode's biggest moments, taking you into the how and the why things happened. And this season, we're very lucky to be joined by an expert, the winner of Survivor 45, Diva Darce. What is up? I'm thrilled to be joining this team and to be giving you my take on how and the why players made the moves they did, what it takes to outwit, outplay, and outlast, and to ask Jeff some questions because... Even after 26 days out there, there is still a lot for me to uncover. Bring it, D. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. Get one of the most successful broadcasts in television history on your schedule with the 60 Minutes podcast. Hard-hitting investigative reports, news, and culture maker interviews, and in-depth profiles are waiting for you in every episode. Listen to 60 Minutes ad-free on Wondery Plus.